Mark has been a long friend. We were talking um, last night uh, at dinner, uh, just trying to remember back when we first met, and, and it was through our mutual friend, Steve Fernandez, who's now with the Lord, um, but, uh, and, and Tony Sinelli and some other brothers that we fellowship with, that I was introduced to Mark. Uh, Mark has been extremely diligent in handling the Word of God in a very, very difficult place. Uh, Mark's going to give us an overview of his ministry in South Africa, and then we've asked him to preach because we want our missionaries to preach. They've got to show us they can preach so we know what they're doing out there. But um, he's going to tell us uh, of that ministry as well. I admire Mark. Mark has taken on some of the very, very difficult challenges that come at the church uh, he has written a book on same-sex marriage, the struggles to battle what's going on, the fight for what God said. Uh, he has taken on some of the, uh, the politics and things that constantly plague the church. Uh, he has been a great exegete of the scriptures. I was sitting there thinking of a verse as we were singing there and getting ready to introduce Mark. This verse came to mind. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but accurately handles the word of truth. Uh, Mark has become a great exegete of the scriptures, and uh, he is a dear friend. He is serving um, in a place uh, that is not native to him. He is from America, but God gave him a bride from South Africa, whom he's been married to 20... 28 years. So uh, Debbie is back home. He's here to preach here and go to Shepherd's Conference and catch up with some other churches. Uh, so it's my privilege. I hope you give him a warm welcome. Mark Christopher, come preach to us. Well, it's a joy to be back in Hollister. It has been uh, four years, I believe, uh, 2011, May of 2011. Uh, we were home on furlough and uh, we came here. I believe we stayed with the Myers as well. And uh, so I might be new to many of you and wonder who, who this dude is. And, uh, but I actually have an association with the church that goes back to 1998. And uh, in the very beginning, in the early years, uh, when the church was looking for missionaries, I said, here am I, I will go for you. And uh, I uh, knew your pastor at the time and was introduced to the church and the rest is history as they say. And uh, the, today, as I stand before you, I uh, realized it's March 1st, and it was exactly 20 years ago that my wife and I arrived on the shores of Cape Town, South Africa, to begin what has now been a 20-year ministry. And uh, we praise God for that, a ministry of uh, training South African leaders, a ministry of church planting. And now as I enter into the next phase of our ministry, and now that I have a little bit of this uh, silver in my hair, I've decided to put it to good use. And uh, I can train far more church planters and pastors than I can plant churches myself with the time I have remaining. And uh, so that's where we're putting uh, all of our eggs at this moment in the training in the training basket. And to that end, I've brought a friend with me, uh, Yaku Skoltz. Uh, he is uh, from the church where I'm currently helping. I'm not the pastor there, but uh, I actually helped train the pastor. And uh, I am now working with Everglen Baptist Church in the northern suburbs of Cape Town, South Africa. And Yaku is one of the members there. And uh, he has, uh, God has given him a, a gift of scholarship, and uh, he has a master's degree in New Testament from Stellenbosch University. And uh, as part of what we're doing, we're starting a branch work of an already existing seminary that is 1,200 miles north of us. 
and uh, they were looking to start a, a branch works of their seminary. And so since there isn't much going in Cape Town, we decided that God was opening this door for us. And Yako is going to be one of the men who helps me uh, with this seminary. And uh, so it's a blessing to have Yako with us. Uh, we also have another man who's down in LA preaching, uh, Tiny Cooper. And Tiny is the man who is the pastor of Everglen Baptist Church. He was a man that I helped train 20 years ago when I first arrived. And he is now the pastor of what was a former church plant that was planted by another missionary some years ago. And uh, so they have come with me to the Shepherds Conference. And uh, tomorrow morning we'll be at a, at a symposium on theological education on the mission field. And then Tuesday we start with the uh, Shepherds Conference. So that's why I'm here. It's a quick trip. It's hit and run. Uh, Scott heard I was coming and he Skyped me last uh, November around Thanksgiving time. And he said, would you come? Uh, we're having our missions emphasis month in February. And I said, well, I can't quite make it in February, but I can make it a March 1st. Is that close enough? And uh, so he said, that's good enough for government work and so here I am and so we we drove up yesterday uh, with jet lag in tow and uh, we actually made it by God's grace so I'm glad to be with you but I just want to give you a quick uh, summary of what the Christophers are doing uh, Debbie is not with me I wish she were but she's at home attending uh, to our 18 year old son Micaiah who's in his final year of high school and our school year runs from January to November, so he's just begun his final school year, his bell lap, so to speak. And uh, so she's home tending to him. Micaiah just turned 18. He's finishing up in an all-boys public school in, in South Africa. And uh, then when he is done, he wants to come join his sister at the Master's College uh, down in Santa Clarita. And so next year sometime, we'll be coming home on furlough. Uh, so my daughter's currently down at Santa Clarita, and it's a blessing. That was the bonus to get to come home, was to get to see her as well. And uh, so I'm looking forward to spending some time with her next week as she has her spring break. But what, what we're involved in right now is I'm helping, I've moved away from church planting, uh, and I'm helping others do church planting in a roundabout sort of way. And Tiny Cooper, who by the way is really tiny, he's not... He's not one of these six foot six guys who gets the name Tiny. Uh, he's a short man, uh, but uh, with a big heart. And Tiny said uh, three years ago, he, had, he invited me to come work with him at Everglen Baptist Church. And he said, Mark, I know there are just so many things we need to do in this church. And one of them is we need to start focusing more on training men for ministry. And I think you're the man to help me with that task. He said, secondly, we don't have elder rule in our church. And I'm really convicted, based on some of the things that I've heard you say in years past, that we need to implement a biblical eldership at Everglen Baptist Church. And he said, I do not know how to do that. Could you come help me? And so I've come alongside of Tiny, really in a strengthening role. And he's opened up his pulpit to me. I preach on Sunday evenings, or most Sunday evenings. He preaches on Sunday mornings. And I've been helping him with leadership development. Uh, we're transitioning right now into a uh, biblical eldership. And we hope to have that completed by the end of this year. And then last year, the opportunity to open up a branch work of Christ's seminary 
uh, in Cape Town became available to us in God's providence. And so I'm helping to head that up. And Yako has been very instrumental in all of that. And so I'm working very closely with him as we seek to get this established. We hope to be up and running sometime next year. And uh, alongside of all of that, I've been lecturing at a colored Bible college. Now, the colored community in Cape Town is the mixed race community. They're neither white nor black, but they're somewhere in between. And there are some four and a half million coloreds in South Africa, which has over 50 million people now. And most of them live in our province and in the Cape Town region. And so they are the largest ethnic group in Cape Town. And so I've had the privilege of uh, lecturing a couple of days a week at a colored Bible college and uh, ministering to some of those that I hope will be the solution to many of the problems that plague the colored community. And Cape Town alone, in the colored community, there are over 120,000 gang members and they rule the colored townships. And so it's a privilege to have one foot in that ministry as well. And uh, so that's just a little bit about what I've been doing and what we're up to, and I try to keep Ted up to date on all of this, and Scott as well. Uh, but certainly, if you ever have questions about our ministry, what we're doing, what, what's going on, you're, you're more than welcome to contact me uh, via email. I'd be more than happy to respond to that, and I do respond. Uh, I, every email I get, I respond immediately, lest I forget. So... But it's a privilege to be with you this morning and to be here in Hollister, 10,000 miles from Cape Town. And uh, I've been asked to preach on missions, and so that is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles this morning. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. And they, they pronounce Isaiah, Isaiah in, in South Africa. So if I revert back and forth, please excuse me. But uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Let me begin reading in verse 1. And I'm reading from the New American Standard, not because I'm new and not because I'm American. It's just what I'm used to. Beginning in verse 1, the prophet Isaiah, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come by wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord will he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and will be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. And so reads the glorious word of God. Let us pray. Father, again, I thank you for this opportunity to be with those who have given so sacrificially, who have prayed unceasingly, not only for the ministry which you have given us in Cape Town, but for many other ministries scattered around the globe. Father, may you now guide us and direct us as we look into your wonderful word. May you encourage us and challenge us by it. May you mold us and shape us. And may you point us to the cross and the empty tomb as we wait for the soon and coming King. And we pray these things in the name of of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I've entitled the message this morning, An Invitation to See the King. Now, I don't know about you, but when I receive an invitation to a star-studded affair, I start to get sweaty palms, sweat on my brow. Why? because I know it's going to entail putting on the best clothing that I have and exercising proper decorum and protocol and all that goes along with that. In other words, I'm going to have to be cultured. And that's not easy for me. Thankfully, I have a wife who is, and she does help me in that department. And she worries about me when I travel alone like this. But uh, I've assured her, Yaku is much more cultured than I am. But can you imagine receiving an RSVP invitation from a very high-ranking dignitary? In a sense, that is really what Isaiah 55 is all about. It is an invitation to see the king. And an invitation that is not going to be exclusive to Israel alone, but really telling Israel how God is going to use them as a catalyst to invite many others to who will, they will ultimately know as the Lord Jesus Christ. And the background to all of this in Isaiah 55 is that Judah is going to be taken captive. It hasn't happened yet. Babylonian captivity has not happened. 
But Isaiah is warning them about what is going to happen because of their rebellion, because of their recalcitrant disobedience to God and his word and to their trampling over the covenant that he formed with them back in Exodus chapter 19. It is of great note that Isaiah 55 comes only a chapter after Isaiah 53. There's only one chapter in between the two. Isaiah 53 details the means that will make Isaiah 55 possible. You see, without Isaiah 53, without that great chapter on the vicarious substitutionary atoning death of who we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, there can be no invitation to the nations to see the King, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 is the tributary. It is the source. It is the price tag that makes the benefits of Isaiah 55 possible. But it's all predicated and rest upon that platform of the substitutionary atonement of the Savior Jesus Christ. Isaiah 54 foresee some of the great blessings that are a result of Isaiah 53. And then as we come to Isaiah 55, it shows us further benefits of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It shows us the benefits of the cost analysis of the death of Christ. Really, in short, and in summary, Isaiah 55 is an invitation to see the king. Now, there are three facets to this, and I'm not going to preach all three of them this morning. But in the first five verses of Isaiah 55, which I'm going to look at this morning, we see that there is a gracious offer that is made to Israel in verses 6 through 11, there is then a humble response that is required. Once the invitation goes forth, there is an RSVP process that takes place, and it begins there in verse 6, where he says, Seek the Lord, will he may be found. Call upon him, will he is near. And let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so that is the humble response. As they turn their backs on paganism, as they turn their backs on idolatry, and as they seek him wholeheartedly, comprehensively, in a full contact manner. And then in verses 12 and 13, the third facet of this chapter, of this invitation to see the king, there, there is an unimaginable result that awaits. For you will go out with joy, you will be led forth with peace, and the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. What we see here is a reverse of the curse. A reversal of fortunes from Genesis 3 
and a return to something that is much more normal that we would see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Ultimately, that will be consummated when the king returns someday. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first facet of this chapter. We're going to look at the glorious and gracious offer which is made to them in this invitation to see the king. So let us look at the four characteristics of a gracious offer that is made. What are the four characteristics of this gracious offer? The first characteristic of the gracious offer extended here in Isaiah 55 is this. It is inclusive. It is inclusive. Please look at verse 1 again. Ho! That's just a form of exclamation to get their attention, to draw their attention to what, the message that he is about to give them. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? It all begins with everyone. It is inclusive. It, no one is excluded here based on the normal, worldly-wise, secular criteria that we have become so familiarized with. This is an invitation that ultimately goes forth to the world at large. It is an invitation that would rival the invitation of John the Baptist in John 1.29 where, where he, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 2, he says, why do you spend money for, or excuse me, uh, this, uh, chapter 54, verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities extending beyond Israel itself. I think of John again in 1 John chapter 4, who reminds his readers of the, the inclusive nature of the church of Christ. In 1 John 4 and verse 14, John says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Every tribe, every tongue, and every kindred. And so this invitation, when he says, ho, everyone, we must understand it as an inclusive invitation to the world at large. And he goes on to explain the very nature of this inclusiveness. In verse 1, he talks about come. 
Come to the waters. Those who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That sounds like a good deal. The, in, the inclusive invitation is extended to those who have absolutely nothing. They are thirsty. They are threadbare. They are hungry. They are in dire straits. They are in desperate need, but they have no visible means available to themselves to procure what is needed to slake their thirst and to stave off their hunger and to satisfy their bellies. It's reminiscent of many of the scenes when some natural disaster hits some third world segment of the world. People are absolutely desperate and destitute. They have no means, and so the means has to be flowing in. Relief workers must go there, and they must, distend, uh, they must dispense the bare necessities to sustain life. Ultimately, these are the spiritually bankrupt. Their hearts are dry. Their souls are parched. They are in a desert-like drought, and they need that cup of cool water to bring relief to them. They need somebody to extend the message of grace, chapstick to their souls. They need someone like Jesus to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 as he stood there with the woman at the well and he told her her whole life story, much to her embarrassment and awkwardness. And yet at the end of it all, what did she do? Come and see this man. We need somebody to go with that message, that invitation, that RSVP to see the king. The publican and the Pharisee in Luke 18. Somebody had to go. And, and you had two responses to the truth. The one was a humble, contrite response where the man would not even look up from the ground and he beat his chest and he cried out for simple mercy. The other one grabbed his, grabbed his suspenders, so to speak, and said, I don't have any need. Look at all of the good things that I have done. Who found mercy? Who found grace? The man who wouldn't lift his eyes from the ground. And so we go with a message to see the king. But this inclusiveness is not only extended to those who, who have absolutely nothing, but it is also extended to those who are self-sufficient. Because in verse 2, he says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance, in true abundance. So now we span the gamut. We, we span that great class divide. You know, you see our, our politicians, whether it's here or whether it's in South Africa or any other place in the world, they love to keep the class division going, don't they? 
That's how they enfranchise themselves in power. Jesus is ultimately comes and he, he, he bridges that divide and brings the two together. And we become one under the banner of the cross in light of the empty tomb. But now he addresses those in verse 2 who have means. They have everything they need. They are self-satisfied, but they are still left with nothing but a poor imitation of the real thing. Their garages are full. Their barns are filled to overflowing. And yet, no matter how much they have and how much more they get, it never truly really satisfies. They drink and they thirst again. They, they eat and they hunger again. But their hunger is never satiated. Why? Because they've been eating the bread of deceit. They're like people who eat nothing but junk food that has absolutely no nutritional value. The more one has, the more one wants. If education and a good career and a promising future and a good 401k are all that is needed to succeed, then why are there so many lives in such an absolute mess, groping for more, clamoring for what they do not have? Why are so many relationships crashed upon the shoals of life? Because it doesn't satisfy. There must be spiritual satisfaction and that comes through Christ and Christ alone. But ultimately the invitation is an inclusive invitation. Secondly, a second characteristic of this gracious offer is not only that it is inclusive, but that it is extensive in its provision both in the quality of the provision and in the quantity of what is offered. What is being offered here is far superior to anything else that can be conceived of. The second part of verse 2, he says, Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. We talk a lot about five-star accommodation. That's not something I know a lot about as a missionary. But uh, a few years ago, on our last furlough in 2011, we flew home via Dubai. And as we often do when we take a furlough, we, we try to fly to some different port of call and we take a, a three-day layover and we go see some of the sites because we could never get there otherwise to do that. It's just one of the fringe benefits that com comes along with the territory, I suppose. And while we were in Dubai and we went to one of the local water parks there and just opposite of the water park, there is a beautiful hotel and I forget the name of it off the top of my head. And we started asking some of the locals about that hotel and come to find out it is a seven-star hotel. Not five star, but seven stars. I can't even wrap my arms and my mind around five stars. Now my wife, lover to the bits, for the last nearly three decades, 
she inquired about how much it would cost to have tea at this seven-star hotel. She came back and dutifully reported to me, a report that I did not ask for, <laughs> that it cost $450 to have tea. I wanted to know if an iPad came with a tea. I said, put it on the bucket list, honey. I said, you understand that is seven-star tea. And you're married to a Motel 6 kind of guy. But you see, the kind of provision that is being offered here in this gracious offer it far exceeds the seven-star accommodation of that hotel. It is a provision that provides all of the basics. Because he says in verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. An abundance of water, an abundance of food. The provision, even though it's basic, it's beyond anything that we can compare. Up above in verse 1, he talks about the water that's on offer here, and we all know what a precious resource that is. You know in California what a precious resource water is. It certainly has been in the headlines, hasn't it? But it's something that we can so easily take for granted until we don't have it. In Palestine, of course, water is, is so precious, it's more precious than oil itself. When its scarcity turns to an abundance, it is an extreme blessing. And the point of this gracious offer is that this scarcity, this spiritual scarcity, is going to be turned to this overwhelming abundance. An abundance known only in Christ himself. Now imagine having water, but you can't drink it because it isn't fit to drink. That's not the kind of water on offer here. You might remember the story of Elisha, one of the first miracles he did after the translation of Elijah there on the eastern side of the Jordan River near Jericho. One of the first orders of duty for Elisha was to go back to Jericho some 10, 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles away. And when he gets there, the first miracle he does in Jericho is he throws salt in a brackish well that had water that wasn't fit to drink. It was fetid, toxic, foul-tasting, foul-smelling, bitter water. It couldn't be used. And he throws that, those handfuls of salt into that well and transformed that water like water into wine. It's a precious resource. So there is this provision of what is basic. It's water. But it's also a provision of plenty. Because he talks here about the bread and about the wine and, and about the milk. All of these things are signs and insignias of extreme blessing. This gracious offer of God which is to come from Isaiah's vantage point is an offer to 
God's banquet table, to God's feast. This is what is on, what is on offer. And the banquet table of God is creaking under the weight of the rich provision that only he can afford. And where salvation is concerned, God is not content to provide the mere necessities of soup kitchen living. God's banquet table is not dumpster dining. When the dinner bell to God's feast rings, it is not a call to a box of military sea rations. And I've, this brother's been there too. We have that in common. And I remember my years when I went through combat training school. You can laugh now. You look at me and say combat training school. Uh, it seems like an oxymoron, I know. But I remember in combat training school, we ate a regular portion of sea rations every day. And on the box it would have labeled uh, ham, beef, chicken, spam. It all tasted the same. It didn't matter what you picked. And the spam? It was spam on steroids. And in fact, I'm convinced, I can't prove it, but I'm convinced that the meat in those cans was laced with Novocaine to deaden the tongue and the taste buds to make it palatable. No matter which box you picked, if it said beef, it was still a mystery meal with mystery meat, a gastronomic surprise. It was the final culinary frontier. There was one guy in our flight who bought unused sea rations to stock in his room and he ate them for breakfast. You don't want to know a guy like that. And ladies, uh, single ladies, if you ever meet a guy like that, don't marry him. And when you're around him, even though you don't want to be, you pray. And you pray one thing. Lord, I pray that he's used mouthwash today. God's provision satisfies. It is abundant. And yet there are people living on the husks of cheap synthetic substitutes that never satisfy. Virtual spirituality, which is no spirituality. They might temporarily mask their hunger, but they never satisfy their hunger. It's like going to McDonald's and having a Big Mac meal and you walk out hungry. Grease laden, but hungry. The point is, the spiritual substitutes that are on offer simply do not satisfy. Idolatry does not satisfy. Isaiah makes that very clear in Isaiah 44. If you turn over just a few chapters to Isaiah 44, verse, beginning in verse 18, and the context here is the folly of idolatry. Whether it's wood, whether it's stone, whether it's precious metals. And in verse 18 he says, They do not know, 
nor do they understand, for he is smeared over their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. In other words, their, their minds and their hearts have become dull. God has given them over, kind of a Romans 1 situation, where they've been given over to their own idolatrous thoughts. Verse 19, no one recalls, nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it, and then I make the rest into an abomination, and I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? He can't figure it out. The same block of wood from which he has made an idol to which he bows down and worships, with the other half of that wood, he builds the fire that cooks his food and boils his kettle. It doesn't compute to him. That is his God. In other words, people given to idolatry have an irrational fury. And idolatry is not reserved for icons, images, or tikis. The human heart, the human mind, is a great manufacturer and conveyor belt of idolatrous thoughts. Any thought about God that does not match up with his revealed word about who he says he is, is idolatrous. Serving idols is a pointless and useless endeavor. Chapter 44 and verse 12, he says, The man shapes iron into, cut a, into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. And he gets hungry and his strength fall, fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. They weary themselves out. They exhaust themselves to the point of dropping over their idolatry. Where I live, sport is very, very uh, much a part of the culture. And they will weary themselves with their... I'm not against sport. I'm an endurance runner. I love running. I love cycling. I love anything to do with endurance. I have a wonderful bicycle that I love to ride, but I've seen many people bow down before that bicycle. That is their God. And they weary themselves and wonder why their relationships are frayed and falling apart at the seams. Ultimately, I love Isaiah 40 and what, he, what Isaiah 40 says about the sovereignty of God in light of idolatry. Verses eight, beginning in verse 18 of Isaiah 40. To whom then will you liken God? In other words, how are you going to capture the image and contours and details of this great and glorious God on the canvas? You're not. It's a rhetorical question. Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He too is impoverished for such an offering. Selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. 
Then again in verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Isaiah's special name for God, the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel. Our imaginative images cannot even begin to capture and depict the inscrutable God. It is a poor facsimile of the real thing. So it is a provision of plenty. It is a provision that includes all of the basics that are necessary. And it is a provision without cost. Because he goes on here and he says, Why do you spend money in verse 2 of Isaiah 55? For what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Up above in verse 1, he says, come, buy, and eat. God is offering this. It is a free provision. It is all of grace. It is a benevolent gift from the sovereign Savior on high. This banquet of riches cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. It is wholly undeserved. Our back-breaking labors can never coerce or command the kind of provision that is on offer here. When Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life, come, take, and eat of me. There is an abundance of provision there. It is hard work digging wells, hauling water, tending flocks and herds, planting seed, cultivating vineyards. But where salvation is concerned, God provides and we receive. You can't take out your checkbook. You can't purchase this. You can never do enough to earn it. This is not the Boy Scouts. There are no merit badges for salvation. The merit badges come after salvation. And so we have this wonderful provision. It is this gracious offer is extensive. And what, it, what is on offer? It is inclusive. And thirdly, it is effective. It is effective. The third characteristic of this gracious offer, the invitation to see the king, is that it is effective. Verses 3 and 4. Incline your ear to come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. God's offer here in Isaiah 55 is efficacious. It meets the need. How do we know that? He evidences it. He evidences it in his word. He says, listen. Listen that you may live. It is his word that assures us of this wonderful provision of the validity and authenticity of what is on offer here. We've all heard the old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Some might say, well, this sounds way too good to be true. How can I know? You've got to read the fine print. 
And it tells us it is his word. In fact, down in verse 10 of chapter 55, he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and make it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word does not return void. Now that's a, that's a double-edged sword. There's a positive and a negative polarity to that. But what he's saying is just as the rain falls and it refreshes the landscape, in like manner my word achieves and accomplishes what I intended it to accomplish. On the one hand, those who receive this gracious offer and they seek the Lord and they turn from their sin, they turn from their pagan ways, they turn from their idolatry, there's life everlasting. To those who refuse the gracious offer that is, that is being extended here, they want no part of it. The negative side is God's word will still achieve what it needs to achieve in their life. And they will be held responsible. They will be held accountable on judgment day for the word that they have heard and yet rejected. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you keep rejecting it and rejecting it and rejecting it, someday God will hold you to account. He will hold you to book for what you have heard. And your judgment in eternity, your eternal judgment will be predicated on the word and the knowledge that you received and yet rejected and pushed away. But one way or another... God's word will be fulfilled. It is effective for what it is, has been intended for. Jesus said, if you receive my word and you become a doer of that word, I will give you abundant life. In fact, let me just look at one passage. In John chapter 5, Jesus had much to say about the word. John 5, 24 Famous verse, truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me and has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death unto life. You hear my word and believe on him who sent me. Over in John chapter 8, there's that famous verse beginning in verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews, who had believed, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In other words, if you're a good ground hearer, if, if you're bringing forth fruit, some, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, you're obeying the word which you have heard. God's word is effective. And listening here in Isaiah 55 has the idea of giving your full undivided attention. You are all ears. 
And so it's effective. It's evidenced in his word. It is effective because it is evidenced in his witness. And here in verses 3 and 4, the reference here is, he says, according to the faithful mercies shown to David. He's talking about the Davidic covenant. The covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And when God would make a covenant with his people, that was an unbreakable covenant infallible covenant it, God, God's promises to his people that he made that covenant with are immutable God will honor that covenant he will honor his promises and even as Israel is getting ready to go into Babylonian captivity God is going to honor his covenant with his people this stands as surety. The covenant is surety. The Davidic covenant, the promise of the prince who is yet to come. That eternal throne of David that stands as a testament to the truth of, of the gracious offer that is being extended here in Isaiah 55. Based on God's loyal and steadfast love, his unchanging eternal person. Based on that, he makes this offer. We promise somebody something and then we realize, uh-oh, I said too much. I shouldn't have committed myself to that. And we begin to waver and we begin to vacillate and hesitate. But God never does. What God is offering here is ironclad. It is a sure thing. It is a money back guarantee. When I was a kid, one of the things that we would do to show that we were serious about what we were saying is, I swear on my mother's grave. Now, I'm not sure what mom thought about that. But that was, that was evidence, that was witness to what, to what we were saying and what we were offering, that it was true. And so the gracious offer here is effective, evidenced both by his word and by his witness. Finally, the gracious offer here in Isaiah 55 the fourth and final characteristic is it is truly transformative. It is truly transformative. Verse 5, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you, because the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Israel will be an instrument of this transformation. Israel was an instrument of this transformation. Look at the book of Acts. Look as we move from the old covenant to the new covenant era, what takes place. Look at Acts chapter 10. Look at Cornelius the centurion, the Gentile, who was in Caesarea Maritime. And God sent Peter to him. And God gave Peter that vision. And told him that it was okay to go and it was all right to eat meat. And Gentiles were now a part of the church. I think of Ephesians 3. Jesus Christ came. He, he obliterated that wall of partition that was between us all. And he makes the two now into one. Poor and rich together. Those who were formerly enemies now embrace under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You see, there's a transformation that takes place. There is an about face. Because now it's not only about Israel, it is about the nations at large. They embrace a new identity in Jesus Christ. And behold, old things pass away and all things now become new. And now both Jew and Gentile alike, who have turned to Christ in saving faith, they now look for a home who ha which has a city who has as its builder and maker the one and same God. They will turn their backs on their pagan rituals, their former culture, and now serve Christ together. Polygamy, a thing of the past. Traditional healing, which we have in South Africa. Also, the traditional healers are also known as witch doctors. A thing of the past. Materialism goes by the wayside. Self-sufficiency, and so forth, and so forth, etc., etc., etc. Because there's a transformation that takes place based on the gracious offer that is given. God's gracious offer is inclusive in its scope, it is extensive in its provision, it is effective in its cure, and it is transformative in its entirety. What's the end game? I close with this, Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation 7 and verse 9, here is a heavenly scene. After these things I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Every tribe, every tongue, and every kindred rallying around the throne of God. The ultimate fulfillment of this gracious offer that we see in this Old Testament book of Isaiah. There might be some here this morning who need to come and draw near and embrace this gracious offer to salvation. Some need to stop holding back and take the bread, the wine, and the milk and drink it and eat it. And ultimately, we all need to delight ourselves in the abundance which is Christ Jesus. The invitation has been rendered. It has been delivered. Have you RSVP'd? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for...
this opportunity this morning to come and to share with my friends at Grace Bible Church Hollister. I thank you for that Old Testament record in Isaiah 55. I thank you for that gracious offer which finds as its catalyst Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. May we not forget that. May we not forget the ultimate basis for grace in salvation through Christ alone. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for those who have given so sacrificially to make missions possible. And Father, I thank you for the outreach that this church has in this community and pray that you would help them to excel still even more. May they go forth with a great and gracious offer and invitation to come and see the King. Lord, I pray that you might even raise up those who might go to some far-flung place to minister to a people who need to hear the grace of the gospel of Christ. Father, help us all in this respect. Help us all to avail ourselves to the abundance which is ours and grace already received. And may we go forth with the message of grace as it's found in Christ Jesus alone. Now, Father, I just thank you and praise you for this opportunity. May we go forth from this place with your blessing upon us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Um, as Darren's going to lead us in a closing song, we want to take a special offering this morning, and it is for our missions. And over this uh, past month, six weeks, we have uh, depleted our missions fund just in what we're doing this, this last month, bringing missionaries here, sending stuff overseas, uh, getting ready to uh, put missions conference on this year. So we would ask that you would give. This is up and above, beyond your normal givings to the Lord. We, this, is a, this is a free will offering to the Lord in a sense. But it is for missions, and it'll fund that. So I want to pray for that. And then Darren's going to have you stand, and we're going to sing, and the offering bags will go around while we're singing, and then we'll, we'll go home. Father, thank you for uh, a great reminder of the free offering the free gift given to us, Lord, as the gospel. And Lord, we uh, think about our own community here, Lord, but the offer here is the same offer in, Sa in South Africa. It's the same offer in India. It's the same offer in the Philippines. It is the offering of Jesus Christ, Lord. He is all we need. So we thank you that we can be a part of that, Lord. We can go, we can uh, be those who go and give that message, or we can be those who can send it, Lord. But there is no third option for us, Lord. So we pray that you'd help us be goers and senders, Lord. We'll give you glory for all the funds that are given today. We promise, Lord, to use them for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.